Okay. Okay, are we ready? Okay. Ready? Welcome. I am astounded, my Lord in heaven. I'm just going to give you a little bit of history, not of the big book and not of recovery, but I'll just give you a little bit of my history as we embark upon a very new phase in our, in our growth here. Uh, I moved here 18 years ago. On June the 23rd, 2002, I moved here with my then wife and my daughter. And we were uh, very, very scared. And the very, the very uh, idea of moving to Scottsdale, Arizona was rather frightening to us. But I did what I always do when I run into good things or bad things. I cling to my recovery. So 18 years ago, I started sponsoring people out of the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club meetings, which is in North Scottsdale. And I was working on a Saturday morning with a woman who, that was when I sponsored uh, ladies, I don't anymore. But uh, we were working together out of the big book. And there was about five or six men at another table. And they were trying not to be real obvious, but they were listening to what I was saying. And they had their big books out as well. Finally, one of the men about the third week in a row, fourth week in a row said to me, would it be okay if we joined you? And we allowed them, I asked the person that I was working with, could they join us? And they did for several months, actually. They probably were regulars with me at the coffee plantation for five or six months. And they were very effusive in their compliments to, to me about what I was saying and stuff like that. And then it started to grow and started to grow. And then it shrank and grew and shrank and grew. And today is a new epoch in, in everything that uh, we've done. So I'm very, very thrilled. I'm a little nervous. I'm used to a telephone format. Uh, I sell on the phone for a living. Anyway, this is a very new experience. And I'm hoping that this is going to be great. This is what most people prefer. This is what most people like. And so I'm I'm thinking it's gonna be great. Well, let's just get started and let's do what we do. Okay, we're gonna be, not, we're not there yet, we're gonna be, and this is July the 4th, 2020. I just wanna make that clear. We are in July the 4th, 2020. Um, we're in the chapter, there is a solution. And I'm just gonna review, and if you've been with me before, you know that that is my style, I review the chapter up to the point where we are. And there is a solution being something that is quite important. Let's look at two ways to pronounce it or two ways to enunciate. There is a solution and there is a solution. The first thing is there is a solution. In the doctor's opinion, we learn about the nature of the problem. We learn about the physical allergy, which is the part of our disease that mandates that when we eat certain things like sugar for me, I'm just going to talk for me. I can't, I don't know what you can eat or what you can't eat. I'm going to just speak for me. When I eat sugar, when I eat fat or flour, I have an actual physical craving for more of the same. And the more of it I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat. And it's just very endless. It's infinite. I also have a mental twist. Now, mental obsession 
for those following at home is 12 and 12 language. The term mental obsession does not appear in the big book in the first 164 pages. It just does not appear. We, he uses the term mental twist. So I stick with big book language. And there is a solution is very important because I've stated the problem. And in Bill's story, we find out through Ebby Thatcher, who got it from Roland and Seber Graves Jr. and a group of people called the Oxford Group, that there is a solution. And what is that solution? It is a spiritual awakening as the result of working steps. What are steps? They are spiritual practices that when put into motion on a daily basis will expel the desire to kill myself with food. That is very, very important for me to know. Because all of my life, from the time I was three, four years old, people were on my parents, people were on me about how much food I was eating and how fat I was getting. And it was very difficult for me to explain to them that I just didn't know how to not eat. And they didn't like that. They would yell at me and scream at me. And they would just say things to me like, you better use your willpower. You better put yourself up by the bootstraps, young man, because fat boys don't get good jobs. And fat boys don't get girlfriends. And fat boys don't get to be on the baseball team. And on and on and on and on. And I knew that they were right. But I just couldn't muster the amount of willpower necessary to stop the desire to eat. And I also, once I ate certain things, I noticed that I reacted very differently than my friends. You see, my friends, when they would eat, say, ice cream, let's just use that as an example. When they would eat ice cream, they would eat a scoop of ice cream, maybe, maybe, and they were done. And if they got done midway through that scoop of ice cream, they were just done. The thought of eating more of it was just not palatable to them. But in my body, the more of it I ate, the more I wanted, the more I wanted, the more I ate, and the more I, it was just endless. So the fact that there is a solution, page 17, is very comforting to me because what it told me is, a, I'm not alone, and B, there's now something I can look at and maybe I can have a life free of this food too. And for the last 21 and a half years, the desire to kill myself with food is simply not there. And the key is, I'm very happy about it. I'm not sad about it. I'm not swinging from the chandeliers, stark, raving, abstinent. Now, for me, and I'm just again speaking that for a person like me with my brain, I often have trouble making decisions. Decision making for me has never been an easy task. So when you can take decision making away from me, now I'm more comfortable. So let's read the title to the chapter again. There is a solution. And as a, if you have, you know, three solutions and I have to pick one of them, I'm going to constantly be looking at your paper. I'm going to constantly be trying to cheat off you because I'm going to assume that your way of doing it is going to be better than mine. Why would I assume that? Number one, I have never been successful at 
finding a way to not eat. I've never been a successful dieter. And B, the bottom line is you weigh less than I do. You must be smarter than me. So if you're choosing method B or C or A or whatever, that's what I'm going to choose too. And that may not be the right decision for me. But when you say there is a solution and this is my solution, this is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a big, big book because I'm old and blind, but I have a big, big book because it's easier to read, but this is my solution. Now, in looking at this chapter, and I will get to today's reading, I promise you, but if you're new, I always review. In getting to this chapter, one of the things that's very vital for me is the fellowship. Can I get, can I get abstinent on the fellowship alone? No. Can I recover on fellowship alone? No. But what I can do is I can find comfort through identification. You see, identification is very, very necessary because I have a brain and an ego that says to me that these problems that I've had with food, these issues that I've had with weight are unique and secret unto me. And one day, one very, very cold day in Chicago, it was a Thursday night, and I was at the meeting at Swedish Covenant Hospital in Chicago. And there was a speaker there, and she became my first sponsor. Her name is Della, and she wouldn't mind me telling you that, because she's pretty cool. And she had a three-year-old and a five-year-old that are both in their 40s now, 50s, and they have children of their own that are older than that. But she was there and she drove a brand new Cadillac. She had a brand new caddy and she had the shoes and the dresses and the jewelry and stuff that told me she had money. And I looked at her and in my judgmental ego said, what the hell is this woman going to say that I'm going to be remotely interested in? And she got up there and she started talking about buying uh, the, the Halloween candy three, four times and buying the Christmas candy three, four times and baking a cake for a friend's party and, and going in the middle of the night and eating the cake and having to go out. And, and that was in the days in the, in the 80s when grocery stores were not always open 24 hours a day. So she had to go and get the ingredients and make the cake again. And it was, it, I could identify with what she was saying. And it made me feel less alone. It made me feel like I was not alone in this. And then as we go through the chapter, we're, we're told that this is an illness. So for the very first time in my life, I didn't have to beat myself unmercifully for not having the necessary willpower, I could say I have an illness and know that it's okay. <clears throat> and I also have a place to go. And this is very important for me. I bet it's important for some of you too. You see, I never had a place to go where I could talk about this openly with anybody because none of my friends would understand. They understood that I was battling my weight. They understood that they didn't want me to be so fat. It was starting to really hurt their life too. And they really were upset with me for gaining the kind of weight that I gained. But now I have a place to go 
where I can both understand and be understood because you, I may not know all of you, there's 163 of you on the line right now, which blows me away, but I can talk to you in a way that I cannot talk to them. I've known them forever. I have wonderful friends. I'm very blessed. I don't really have a family per se, uh, you know, an extended family, but I have wonderful, beautiful, caring friendships. And I have friends that go back all the way to grammar school and the neighborhood in Chicago. And we love each other and we know each other. I know everything about them. They know everything about me but they don't understand why I ate the way I ate. They don't understand why I'm here this morning. They would want me to go out and play golf or they would want me to go out and do something recreational. They don't get why I'm here now because you speak and understand the language of the heart. I can come to you and have, and you can come to me and we just understand. And that is a gift that comes from the ashes of what this disease does to our life. The disease vandalizes and putrefies every aspect of our life, every aspect of our relationships, every aspect of everything that we endeavor to do. But the recovery elevates and reconstructs in a brand new way. The most beautiful things in our life become so, uh, so important to us and so easily accessible in the recovery. So if all the food did was make me fat, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. So I'd be fat, that's okay, whatever. But it putrefies and vandalizes everything. And then in the recovery, we are elevated and catapulted into a level of life that we had never known before. If you're listening to me say that, and you're not quite there yet, Take our hands and let us guide you to that. And you will see that when you trust God and you walk to him, he'll run to you. And then we find out on the top of page 19, the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. Very, very important for us to remember because you see, abstinence is not the most important thing in my life without exception. The most important thing in my life without exception is to serve God. The most important thing in my life is on the bottom of page 14, where it says, my friend, talking about Ebby, had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. In all of my affairs, particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain, certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again and with us, and if he drank, he would surely die, then faith would be dead indeed. So, so it is very, very important for me to keep in mind, I have these focaccia allergies, hold on. <sighs> Sorry. Oh, God. You think it's 100 and, it's, a, it's 98 degrees going up to 109. You would think that these focaccia allergies would, uh, would alleviate, and they just don't. But anyway, that's okay. That's, that's for another uh, thing here. Okay. 
So we have this and it says that we feel the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. So let's go to today's reading and we're gonna go to page 23. And on page 23, we see the paragraph once in a while. Before we even begin that, I'm just gonna divert one more second here because it says at the top of 23, in the first paragraph, the one starting with these observations, the one that says, therefore the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body, we are going to see today an aspect of that mind, an aspect of that mental twist that not a lot of sponsors talk about. So I really think, I hope that today we will make you or give you, not make you, give you information that if you are a sponsor, it will help you be more effective. And if you are the sponsee, it'll deepen your understanding of how our minds work as opposed to the minds of others and how it works this way in the area of food, but not everything else. It's not a unilateral thing. Okay, we're on page 23. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow someday they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count. I did not understand myself. And this is part of why we doubt ourselves so much, why we have trouble in the area of God, why we have trouble in the area of our self-esteem because we learn not to trust ourselves. Now, when we're in recovery, we can learn to trust ourselves. And now I like me, but that took a long time. And I remember being a kid, seven, eight, nine years old. And I remember a particular instance when I was nine, I went to the doctor with my mother and the doctor was screaming at my mother in Yiddish and that my mother was screaming back at him in Yiddish. And what happened eventually is I was put on some very heavy duty amphetamine diet pills. And I was nine years old and I had to take these pills and they killed my appetite. But when they killed my appetite, what none of us knew in that scenario was they also killed the fact that I wasn't getting anything to give me the effect. So I was angry and scared to death all the time because I didn't have the food to take the edge off. I had an, I had an opportunity a number of years ago, and this was an opportunity that I had in San Francisco, California. And I went up there with five, uh, excuse me, seven days notice, six days notice. It was a Saturday morning. I was on my way to the coffee plantation and my cell phone rang and it was a 415 area code. And the woman said to me, our speaker just got diagnosed with stage four cancer. Can you come up here? And it was an AA retreat. It was not, it was AA and there were NAs there. It was not an OA retreat. And I says, you, you know I'm not alcoholic. You know that, correct? And she says, we've heard your podcasts. We've heard you on 
recordings. We want you to come up here. I says, okay, I have to get the dogs situated. And if I can do that, that's fine. And I went up there and it was Saturday. Um, and it was, a, it was the Saturday, we were eating lunch and I was eating lunch with about five ladies. I was the only man at the table. There was like five ladies at the table and me. And there was this one girl there. She was about 22, 23 years old. And I started um, talking about the fact that I wish I was an alcoholic or a drug addict because then I would look better than the fact that I was a fat boy. And she turned to me, this is a 22 year old, listen to the knowledge here. She said, at least you had something as a child to take the edge off. She says, I spent my entire childhood climbing the walls and fighting with everybody and mean and nasty and miserable because I couldn't just, I couldn't tap into anything that would take the edge off. Cause she said, I didn't discover Coke until I was 15 and I didn't discover booze until I was 14. And she says, that's the only thing that took the edge off for me. So when we, when we look at this paragraph about how we, we really in our hearts do not know why we do it, here's the why we do it. Dr. Silkworth explains why we do it. And Dr. Bill Wilson explains why we do it. Remember in Bill's story, it says on the first page, first, first page, I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. Here's why we do it. Sponsors, listen to this. We do it. Because when we're not doing it, we are restless, irritable, and discontent. When we're not doing it, we are miserable and angry and scared and unsure of ourselves and feeling less than or greater than the world around us. And we are raging against an unchangeable past. And we are fearing and cowering in a corner about a future of which we are uncertain. That's why we do it. Because the food, those baby Ruth bars, those Oreo cookies were successful at taking the edge off my brain. That's why we did what we did. Or if you're still doing it, that's why you do what you do. Now, I want to say something here, and you know if you've been with me before, I will always talk about this. For me, food was the thing that I turned to. But there are other behaviors that some of you on the line, and I can't see everybody, I don't know exactly who's on here, but I'm gonna assume that out of 173 people, there are, there are people that fall into this category. Here's the category I'm talking about. Maybe not all of you overate like I did. Some of you were anorexic. Some of you were bulimic. And you got the same effect out of, the, out of the bulimia. Now there's vomiting bulimia, there's laxative bulimia, there is exercise bulimia. Those are the three main bulimias that we have. And I've said this before, I have friends of mine that are in this program that if I brought them on camera here, you would think that they were movie stars. You would think they were models. They are bulimic. They never reached the weights that some of us may have reached, but they're just as sick as we are. And their, their bodies and minds are different from normal people. And the illusion that somehow someday they will be like those people has to be smashed for them. 
and they are people who are gutter, back alley, dumpster diving, compulsive overeaters. They just never weighed north of two, three, four hundred pounds, but they are bulimic. Now, some people get a high or an effect from restricting the amount of food. And when we talk about that, we're talking about anorexia. And a, a question on uh, vision for you this week, I couldn't get on to answer it. A woman asked, what are the be compulsive behaving, behaving, what are the compulsive eating behaviors? I knew I'd get it out eventually. What are the compulsive overeating behaviors? These are some of them compulsively eating food, anorexia, bulimia. These are the things we're talking about when we talk about abstaining from compulsive overeating and compulsive eating behaviors. These are the behaviors that we are speaking of. Romanticizing about food, fantasizing about food, those are other ones as well. Page 23. How true this is, we realize in a vague way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal. Now, my family was my mother and my father. I don't have sisters and brothers and all that stuff. I don't have that. But my family was my mother and my father. And one of the things that I can tell you is my mother and father got up in the morning and they started fighting and they fought day and night. They fought like two cats in a bag. But one of the things that could unite them was the idea of what are we gonna do about Harlan? He's getting too fat. And they would lay down their fighting for a five minute, 10 minute discussion of what they're gonna do. And my friends would get alarmed as well. But everybody, I'm continuing on with the paragraph, but everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. Now, this comes from ignorance. You see, a lot of people believe, and I'm, I'm not alone here, I bet they believe this about you too. A lot of people believe that I was eating that food and getting that fat because I just didn't care. Or maybe I wanted to be fat. What they didn't realize is I would have given anything to acquiesce to their demands. There was nothing they could have asked me to do that I would not have done. I am not a person who wants to be fat. I am not a person who wanted to be emasculated physically and emotionally by this disease. I am not a person who wanted to go on my first date with a girl when I was 35 years old. I am not a person that wanted to break furniture. I am not a person who wanted to get stuck in cars. I am not a person who couldn't go to the, who, did, who wanted to be a person who couldn't go to the movies because I couldn't fit in the seat. I didn't want to be the person that got made fun of as I walked down the street and children would laugh at me and adults would laugh at me. I was saying this to someone yesterday. The only time anyone touched me that was not malicious was when I would get my hair cut. People would walk up to me on the street and they would slap my stomach and ask me when the baby hippo was due. People that I didn't even know would come up to me and say, do you know how fat you are? People would come up to me on the street that I didn't even know and say the most rude, inconsiderate things to me. You wouldn't say them to your worst enemy. 
But because I was morbidly obese, not only did they say those things, but I also believed at some level that I deserved them to say those things, that somehow I I deserved it because I wasn't with the program, not the OA program. I wasn't with the willpower program, the dieting that everybody had suggested to me. I wasn't with the program, and so I deserved to be made fun of. So I don't know what was worse, the people that did that or the fact that I, I didn't stop them. I, I, I just stood there like a, a dope and let them do it because I felt like, well, it's my fault I'm fat. And so from a very early age on, when you are existentially incorrect, you begin to want death more than you want life. And from the time I was about six or seven years old, I would beg God for death every day of my life. I wanted to die because I knew from my attempts at dieting, I couldn't live with the food and I couldn't live without the food. There was no place for me in this world. And I bet that even though you may never have weighed 700 pounds, you may never have weighed over 300 or 200 in your life. You understand what I'm talking about because when you're in this disease, you are not alive. You are just existing. You are not alive. This is not being alive. And so I wasted decades of the one life that I did have And I did not know how to live in this world at any level. There was nothing in my life that resembled anything like living a life. I was living to eat and eating and eating and eating and eating. And there was nothing I could do about it or so I thought. So this was my life. This was where I was. This is what was going on in my life. Okay, let's continue, bottom of 23. The tragic truth is that if a man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. He has lost the power, he has lost control, excuse me. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. This tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. And that's why you will never hear me say, food is my drug of choice. Food is my drug of no choice. Food is my drug of no choice because when it comes to food, I have no choice. When it comes to food, I eat the food and the food eats me. I eat the food and the food takes over and the disease of compulsive overeating will steer my life in a direction that nobody wants to go. It'll steer my life into deprivation. It'll steer my life into shame. It'll steer my life in a direction that I never ever wanted to go and I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. I would never, ever wish this on anyone. There is no way that this disease ever steered me in a direction that was even remotely advantageous or acceptable. As I lived each day, my disease and my life putrefied and deteriorated 
faster and faster and faster and faster. And only God could whisper on the ember of my heart that was the only one unburned, the only one that still wanted to live, and the only ember of my heart that God could resurrect so that he could whisper on it and it burst into flames. And now I want to live more than I want to die. And that for me is the recovery. That for me is the steps. That's the embodiment of what this is about. Because of myself, I do not want to live. I do not know how. And as a coward, I will lay down and die. It, the only bravery in me, the only courage I have in me, courage is never the absence of fear. It's doing the brave thing in the face of fear comes from working these 12 steps and incessantly teaching this to other people. Let's continue. And, and I just before I continue, I just want to say this. If God can resurrect and reconstruct me, think of what he can do for you. Now, the next paragraph here is in italics. And when they would go to the printer in 1939, April 10th, 1939, the book was printed. If they had to use italics, it cost them more money. So they had to think this was pretty important for them to spend what little money they had. Let's look at this paragraph. The fact is, that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. What step are we working here? What step are we talking about here? Uno. We're talking about step one. Or if my friend Barbara was here from Italy, passo uno. Passo is steps in Italian. Okay. That means that for me, I have no choice when it comes to food. The power of choice has been taken from me by a disease that I did not ask for, I didn't want, and the power of choice is gone, completely gone. <sighs> okay. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent and if willpower was operable for us, we wouldn't be 173 people on this line right now. We'd be out doing what, well, not maybe in the middle of a pandemic, but we would be doing other things. We wouldn't be gathered around our computers and telephones. So we have this situation here where we have a disease and there is nothing within us that's gonna overcome this disease. Now, I've said this before and I'm gonna say it here again. There is nothing that is of this earth that is gonna explain why you have this disease. And there is nothing of this earth that is gonna alleviate the disease. I'm gonna say that again because it's so important. Nothing of this earth is going to explain why you have this disease. And nothing that is of this earth is going to alleviate this disease. Your power, your relief, your recovery, if you're anything like me, must come from a higher power. Let's continue. 
we are unable at times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Now, we talk a lot in vision. We talk a lot in our meetings. We read and discuss the mental twist and the physical allergy. That's good, we should do that, continue to do that. But now I wanna talk about the sidekick of the mental twist. You see, the mental twist has a sidekick. If, if Batman is the mental twist, this is Robin, okay? And that is the mental blank spot. What is the mental blank spot? The mental blank spot is that part of our brain that will not allow us to remember with any type of sufficient force what the food does to me. It will only allow me to focus in on what that pizza, that cookie, that cake, whatever is gonna do for me. I look at the idea in my head of eating Oreo cookies and I'm wrestling with that idea and I cannot bring to consciousness that this is gonna make me fatter. And if I do think about it, it's quickly pushed aside. The mechanism in the brain that enables that to happen is called the mental blank spot. Sponsors, sponsoring people means that we explain why we cannot bring with sufficient force the idea of this mental blank spot. It is not something that we can overcome on our own. I forget the fact that I'm standing in line at a fast food place, 250 pounds heavier, 300 pounds heavier than anybody in that place. And yet I'm ordering massive, massive amounts of food. When I was not quite two years old, not quite two years old, it was Sabbath, it was Friday night, and my mother would light Sabbath candles on Friday night. And it was a Friday night, and I was getting more and more mobile. I don't remember any of this. This is a story that I've been told 27,500 times. I climbed up on a chair, and I took my index finger, and I stuck it in the liquid part at the base of the wick. There's always like a liquid part that's melting. And I thought it was water or something. I don't know what I thought. I don't remember. I stuck my finger in there. I screamed so loud. We lived in an apartment building. I screamed so loud that several of the neighbors knocked on the door to make sure that nobody got killed in our apartment. I was screaming so loud that my mother and father had to comfort me for what seemed like a half an hour before I would stop crying. Now, that was 66 or 65 years ago. For the last 65 years, any time and every time I have burned myself, it was 100% accidental. I never deliberately put my hand in a flame. I never put my hand in a candle or a fireplace or a wood-burning stove or an oven or a burner deliberately to see if it will hurt me. 
when a, when a waitress comes to the table and says, be careful, the plates are hot, I pay attention to that. And I try not to burn myself. When it comes to food, food has burned me, vandalized me, destroyed me, shamed me, amputated me, made it a life of loneliness and deprivation, an asexual existence, an existence and a life that I wouldn't wish on anybody. And yet, and yet, if I stop working the steps, I will go back to the food. It is not a question of when I'm, of, of if I'm gonna go back to the food. It is only a question of when. The only question that I have is, when am I gonna go back to the food? It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow. I couldn't tell you. Because the memory of what the food did to me, not for me, is not accessible to my brain. If you could think of it as a computer, there may be certain pieces of information on a computer that is inaccessible to you. This is exactly what's happening in our brains. We cannot remember what the food does to us. We only focus in on what the food does for us. It's gonna taste real good. It's gonna give me it's gonna make me feel better. I deserve it, I want it, I don't care. I want it, I don't give a damn, I just wanna be full, I, I want this, whatever it is we tell ourselves. And that mental blank spot is one of the things in our brain that is different from other people. It is different because other people's brains are not wired that way. They just do not think the way we think. They see the food, they understand that this food is gonna make them fat, or this food is gonna give them gas, or this food is gonna possibly give them diarrhea, or whatever that may be for that person. That person is going to have a reaction in their brain that is very, very normal. And so as a person that is reacting normally to that food, they are gonna make very good decisions where we are not gonna make good decisions because that part of our brain has been short-circuited. So when you sponsor, please go over this with your sponsees. This is definitely a part of the illness. Let's continue page 24 the almost certain consequences. Now let's look at that, the almost certain consequences. Are you kidding me? The word almost, I don't know about that one. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazily and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. Remember when Dr. Silkworth says that we cannot tell the true from the false? Here's what he's talking about. He's not thinking that you as a compulsive overeater think that today is Tuesday. He's not thinking that you think as a compulsive overeater that up is down or down is up. No, 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 no. What he's saying there when he says we cannot tell the true from the false is he is saying that we are eating food that is going to hurt us 
and yet we convince ourselves somehow that this time it's going to be okay. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the inability that we have to see the situation as it is. In other words, I'm at Dunkin' Donuts. I'm making up a story for the lady or the man behind the counter of a party or I'm bringing it back to the office and I'm ordering several dozen donuts. And I'm thinking there, now does Bill like the chocolate or the custard? I think he likes the custard, we'll get those. And what is Jane like and what is Mary like? I just don't remember, well, let's just get them all, blah, blah, blah. And we're making something up. A normal person doesn't do that. They understand, number one, I, I look like an idiot because I'm very transparent. But number two, I shouldn't be eating several dozen donuts. It's gonna give me gas. It's gonna give me sour stomach. It's gonna give me diarrhea. It's gonna make me fat. It's gonna put more distance between me and every goal I've ever had. It's gonna put more distance between me and happiness than was there before. And yet I'm signing up for it seemingly voluntarily. Now, if you're nodding your head, yes, that this is the way you think and these are the things you do, welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, welcome home. Because this is part of what this disease is and it's part of how the mind conspires with the body to kill us. This is what this disease is at its base. It is a mental twist aided and abetted by a mental blank spot and it is a physical allergy. That's what the disease is. The mental blank spot is the least talked about aspect of what we do by sponsors that I've seen over 41 years, 21 years abstinent. Let's continue. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. Would you put your hand on a hot stove? I don't think so. Would you, if you were late for an appointment, would you drive 100 miles down the street to go to your appointment, knowing it'll get you there faster? No, you would not. You would hurt yourself, you might kill someone, you might kill yourself, you fear retribution from the police, the police would give you a ticket, you don't do those things. And yet you will thumb your nose and every thought that comes into your mind that says, I'm not going to eat this pizza, and you'll eat the pizza, and you will love the fact that you ate the pizza until the shame and the remorse and the horror of what you're doing is upon you. And that comes to the horror of what you've done is upon you. And so when that happens, you will feel horrible. Why would you make yourself feel horrible? You can't help it. Because the idea that you're gonna feel horrible eventually does not crowd into the mind. Let's continue We're on page 24. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. Or perhaps he doesn't think at all, how often have some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way and after the third or fourth, pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sake, how did I ever get started again? Only to have that thought supplanted by, well, 
I'll stop with the sixth drink or what's the use anyhow. You remember when Bill went into the cafe to make a telephone call and he found himself pounding on the bar, wondering how it happened and I might as well get good and drunk this time. And I did remember that. Remember that from Bill's story? That's how that happens. We cannot bring into consciousness that this is going to happen. But in other areas of your life, you are sane and you will not make the same mistake a million times. You know that the traffic on a certain street is very heavy. You'll take alternative streets. Few of you, I hope, won't continue to go down that street hoping maybe this time it's going to be different. You learn and you adjust like a normal person. But when it comes to food, you don't learn and you don't adjust. You don't learn because the food is the only thing that takes the edge off. And you don't learn because the built-in forgetter called the mental blank spot is operative there. And you cannot bring to mind with sufficient force what the food is going to do to you. You can only focus in on what it's going to do for you. And this is the disease. Let's continue at the bottom of 24. When this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid and unless locked up may die or go permanently insane. The disease, as we're going to talk about a lot more in the next chapter, the disease is permanent, it's progressive, and it's fatal. It's permanent. You never get rid of it. We talk, this is the most common question asked on vision. If you go to vision for you meetings, this is the most common question asked. What, how do I know if I'm recovered or not? You are recovered if you've had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps and the urge to eat has been expelled through the action of the steps. And by the spiritual awakening, you are no longer in a position where you're looking to get that effect from food because you're getting that effect from the working of the steps, okay? But when that happens, we have to remember there's no permanent cure for this disease. We are not cured. We, are, we only have a 24-hour reprieve. And unless we, have, we place himself beyond human aid, what does that mean, beyond human aid? It means we're gonna have to have a spiritual awakening and we're talking about a power greater than yourself. And that power greater than yourself, I choose to call God. And I have to remember that as I work through these steps, the second step does not say, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence. It does not say, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sobriety. It does not believe that a power greater than our, myself could restore me to whatever. It says, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And when I'm restored to sanity, that has a much higher ceiling. That has, that's a much more open-ended thing than abstinence or sobriety. Sanity is what I'm really looking for. It's abundant and it's the ceiling on it is much, much higher. So once again, we're being told 
the only relief we have is through a power greater than ourselves. You can call it whatever you want to call it. If you are an agnostic, can you recover? Yes. If you are an atheist, can you recover? Yes. If you are a believer, can you recover? Yes. It doesn't matter. I have a friend of mine, and uh, she's, she calls her higher power spirit. And I have other friends of mine that call their higher power different things. I call it God, some people, whatever. My first higher power was Lake Michigan. I saw it out there. It was huge and big and unafraid, and it was violent at times and peaceful at times. That was my first higher power. I love cruising Lakeshore Drive, you know, and I especially love the northbound lanes because you're closer to the water when you're in the, for any of you who have lived in Chicago or maybe you've been to Chicago, the northbound lanes are closer to the water than the southbound lanes. But you can easily see the lake and the sun and everything from both sides. But that was my first higher power. These start, I'm at the bottom of 24. These stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions of alcoholics throughout history, but for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop, but cannot. I am one of those people that cannot stop. Without a power greater than myself, I would be dead. That's not the worst thing in the world. We're all going to die. Life is a fatal illness. The most horrible thing about this for me is that I never would have lived. I recently was having a, a thought to myself that I, I know of a person, and I, I don't want to name the person. I don't want to you know, do that. But this is a person that showed me something, and, and this is what they showed me. They showed me what I was missing. And when I saw what I was missing in life, it made me want to live more than I had ever wanted to live before in my life. It gave me more of an appetite because I always thought that if I knew what I was missing, I would want to die. I found out what I was missing and now I want to live because I want more of it. I want more life. I don't know how much more time I have left to go. Not today, I know I can see the clock. I don't know. I don't mean that. What I mean is somebody's hungry. All right, but she's that makes her hungry. Maria, somebody's on you. Yeah, have them. Okay. So the bottom line is now I see what I was missing, and it makes me want to live even more. It gives me more of an appetite for living. Top twenty-five. There is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires. The key word here is requires. That is the key word here. We're talking about the steps, the leveling of our, the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, that the process requires. It is not going to give us anything less than a requirement for a successful consummation. We are all going to have to do that, and not just once. We have to do it every single day, and we have to teach this incessantly to others. 
I have a friend of mine who lives in New Jersey. I love what she says. She says, you're afraid to sponsor? You damn well better be afraid not to sponsor because this is a 12-step program. This is not an 11-step program. This is a 12-step program. But we saw that it really worked in, we saw that it worked, it really worked in others and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. My life was futile and hopeless. I didn't dare to dream. How could I dare to dream knowing that every dream I had ever dreamed went up in smoke? How could I dare to dream when I knew in my mind I couldn't trust myself? How could I dare to dream when every dream I had ever wanted to aspire to was thwarted and destroyed and putrefied and vandalized by the food? How could I dare to dream when I knew that I wanted to die more than I wanted to live? When therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. This is very, very important. What does it say here? When therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved. Now let me tell you something about me. When you guys came to me 41 years ago, and you presented this program to me, I rejected it because I didn't think it would work for me. I have terminal uniqueness. What are the three jobs of the ego? Make me right, make me feel good right now, and, and, and make me different from everybody around me. So I was different from everybody around me, and I didn't do what I was supposed to do. What eventually happened was I began to take action after action after action after action that I did not yet believe in, but I saw that it was working in others. And when I saw that it was working in others, I started to take this action and willingness followed. I had to stop waiting for willingness. I had to stop waiting to be ready. I had to stop waiting for the willingness to come. The willingness came for me after I started the, the, the inertia going the other way by taking action after action after action. And Bill says in his story, I saw that it worked in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. He had it because he saw that it was working in Ebby. Look around you, not just here on, on uh, the Zoom meeting. Look around at some of your face-to-face -face meetings. Come to the OA birthday in Los Angeles. Now, I think this year is actually going to be on Zoom. I don't think it's going to be a live convention. But come to the vision conventions. Come to the vision meetings on the phone. Maybe one day vision will be on Zoom. Who knows? I don't know. But come to the vision meetings on the phone. Hear the voices of people that are afflicted similarly to you. Hear the hope in their voice. Hear the, the, hear the voice of God in what they're saying. Watch them for the signs of the recovery 
Watch them for the signs of life that they can demonstrate because they have been emancipated by a loving God. Look around you. We don't have to live in the disease any longer. Test your God. Walk to God. He'll run to you. Watch the people recovering and become one of them. You're not sure how to start. There are thousands of people whose voices can guide you, whose examples can guide you. You don't know exactly where to start or how to begin. It begins with putting the food down. If you're further along the line and you're a little scared of something, remember this, we have been there, we will help you. Let's go back, page 25. We have found much of heaven and have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. Now let's understand that when the big book wants to tell you something, teach you something, it repeats it. I have a friend that's a teacher, uh, a fourth grade teacher, and she told me that when, uh, when you want to teach something and you repeat it, it's called spiraling the information. And this is information that is getting spiraled. And Bill talks about that he was catapulted into a fourth dimension of existence. Let's define that so that your understanding of it can grow. There is the dimension of the height. There's width and there's depth. Those are the three dimensions, height, width, depth. The fourth dimension, hold on, <sighs> sorry. The fourth dimension is the dimension of the spiritual, of God. If you're offended by the term God, if God is not your term, it could be a group of drunks. It could be the gift of desperation. My friend uses the word spirit. When, when this person addresses their higher power, she holds her hands out and she says, spirit. It could be spirit. It could be whatever it's going to be for you. That's fine. That's okay. But the fourth dimension is the dimension of the spiritual. And that means that we live in a world where we can reach our fullest potential. It means that we can be the person that God intended us to be. Now I am seeing that I separate myself from the toxic relationships I've had over the years. I have certain friends of mine that when they come out here to Arizona from Chicago, I'm very, very busy and tied up all day long for days. Why? I don't want to hear the hatred. I don't want to hear the backstabbing. I don't, I don't, I, my ears, they, they run from that stuff now. And I have certain friends of mine that when they come out from Chicago, I can't spend enough time with them because they're not like that. I'm learning to be the person that God wants me to be. When I mean yes, I say yes. When I mean no, I mean no. And I can speak my mind. I can be who I am. And I don't have to look in the mirror and see someone else's face looking back at me. And when I say to you that that was my reality, I was so sure others could take care of me and be the person that would be my higher power. I looked in the mirror and I saw their face staring back at me. I don't have to live that way anymore. 
This will be the last paragraph we're going to cover today. The great fact is just this and nothing less. That we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. I have not had a spiritual experience. I've had a spiritual awakening. What's the difference? A spiritual experience is quick, fast. Like Bill had in the hospital. God came to him through the window. He saw the light. He had a vital spiritual experience, and he never drank again. For me, God comes very slowly, very slowly. And that is a spiritual awakening. I've had a spiritual awakening, okay, which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life. My whole attitude toward life is very different from what it was before. Toward our fellows, I am much more loving toward other people. See, in my disease, I'm either better than you, I'm worse than you, but I'm never equal to you. I'm always comparing myself to other people, and I'm never coming out on the, on the good end. I'm always comparing out of desperation, and when I compare I look up at you and say, if only I was as lucky as you, if only I was as rich as you, if only I was as good looking as you, as only whatever. If I had what you had, I'd be fine. And I can't live that way anymore. I have to look inside and I have to say, I have everything I need to live my life, to live my life. Look at, the, look at what's happening here. Did I ever believe in my wildest imagination that from the depths of my despair in compulsive overeating, that one day we would be here today doing this, never saw it coming at all. And toward God's universe, I look at God's universe today and I'm in awe. You know, I love the OA birthday. I love the OA birthday. I hope you've heard me say that, and that's fine. One of the things I love is getting in a day or two early. I love getting into Los Angeles early. And I have a friend of mine. I have several friends of mine. Most of them live in Colorado, although some live in New York City, and some of them live in LA and whatever. When we go out to the birthday, they also come early, and we have a lot of fun. And they go out to the Pacific Ocean early in the morning to watch the sun come up. And that's great. And they come back and they are in the lobby of the hotel, clapping their hands together, saying, what a miracle we saw the sun come up over the Pacific Ocean. And that is a miracle. But it's not the greatest miracle there. You see, the greatest miracle there is that there are compulsive overeaters in those rooms at the hotel in Los Angeles people afflicted with a fatal illness and they're not compulsively overeating and they are refraining happily. That's the miracle. That's a greater miracle. You see, a miracle is really something for which there is no scientific explanation. And there is a scientific explanation as to why the sun comes up. The sun doesn't really come up. The sun doesn't move. We spin around as earth and then we see it and then we don't and we see it again. But a compulsive overeater, not compulsively overeating, Veya's mirror, what a miracle. What a miracle. That's the miracle. Don't miss it if you come. 
the central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. My God is alive. I can't use a dead God. I had a dead God thrust upon me when I was a little boy. I, the burning bush is fantastic and the splitting of the Red Sea is awesome. And Moses coming down, he was the first guy to download things onto a tablet. Was Moses, he downloaded those 10 commandments onto a tablet. He was numeral uno when it comes to that. Those are all great things. But the miracles that I've seen are the resurrections of the lives in this organization coming from the dead to life through the working of these steps. My God is alive. And I am on a raft going down a river and I cannot see around the corner. I don't know what's coming. And there are parts of my life I wish were different. There are parts of my life I wish I could change, but I cannot. And God will cry with me and he will walk with me toward a better end. And we sit and we wonder and we look up at God through tears in our eyes and we say, why my mother? Why my father? Why my child? Why my friend? Why me? And we blame God. And what we don't understand most of the time is God gave people choice. He gave people free will. And some people do terrible things. And God cried with us. Give him an opportunity. He will resurrect the situation. He can't always, you know, he can't bring, he's not going to bring people back to life and he's not, whatever, but he will cry with you. Life changes. 10 years ago, I was a married man living with my wife and daughter in North Scottsdale, Arizona. I haven't been married now for 10 years. I had a big house. My backyard was 89% of an acre, just the backyard alone. And we had a beautiful home. I was proud to bring people into that home. It was gorgeous. And with my wife, you could eat Thanksgiving dinner off the, off the bathroom floor. It was, that place was immaculate. Um, my life is very different today. But what do I, what do I know? I know that God is right here and that it's all going to be okay. It may not be what I want, but it's going to be okay. Let's finish the paragraph and then we'll open it up. It says, he has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do by ourselves. Now, just remember, there's a little inferred warning here. He's not going to do for you what you can do for yourself. That's not going to happen. You are going to have to take action after action after action, and you're going to have to do the things which you can do. Okay, Maria, I hope this was, a, I hope this was as good as it was on the phone, guys. I don't know. I don't know, you know how, how different I sound or anything. I, I have no way to know that. But um, I hope that this was good. I hope this was informative. And um, let's open it up for questions.